Hello everyone, and welcome back to episode 8. As a trigger warning for this episode, we'll be talking about disordered eating. Please enjoy this interview with Narmada Morris, and as always, know that you can reach out to us anytime. We love you. Okay, so Narmada, welcome. We're so happy to have you and to hear this new perspective talking about disordered eating and what that looks like in the adoptee world. Um, but before we hop into that, just introduce yourself, let us know about you, and yeah, whatever feels good is great. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, my name is Narmada, and um, I was adopted when I was two years old from India to my mother. Came to Colorado. I grew up here. Um, absolutely love it. Still haven't left. Um and uh, I grew up going to heritage camps for ad- adoptive families. And then around 15, just really hit the ground running with volunteer opportunities. And that's really been a huge part of my adoption story is going there, doing panels, workshops, um, coordinating uh, across all the camps, not just Indian camp. I, I love being part of the domestic um, camps as well. And then um, right now, what's been really great is adoptions become such a part of my life. I'm working on international homeland trips specifically catered to adoptive families um, and really just creating a, a pathway to connect uh, adoption and culture in a different different way. So that's been a really big undertaking and I'm excited to be here and talk about a, one aspect of adoption that I don't think gets a lot of attention and that's disordered eating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have to say like, I don't know a ton about it in the adoption world. And so I'm really interested to hear what you're going to share with us. Yeah. So disordered eating is interesting because I grew up with disordered eating and I don't think I realized what it was until I was around 24. I had heard of eating disorders more so in like that middle school, high school age, but um, there's a lot of aspects of disordered eating, I think that don't get talked about. And Parts of that are really even just how much our culture in general can be fixated on diet culture, weight loss, image. And so when you're transracially adopted, you're looking at all these magazines and you're still trying to compare yourself. And I think that that contributed partly to my disordered eating, but it was also a control and safety thing. And I found for me specifically, looking back, I, I definitely had major food hoarding as a child and didn't realize there was a name for it or that was a thing. I can still remember when my mom would be out, I would sneak food from the cabinets and then rearrange the pantry. So it looked like I never took anything. And when I look back, it's so funny because there was never anything said in our family that I wouldn't be given food or that I couldn't have anything I wanted. Um, You know, there was the classic, like, please don't eat dessert before dinner type of thing, um, which is very normal. But my mom never restricted or commented on portion size. It was never like that. Um, I had a very normal access to food and normal experience in that regard. But I still would find that she would leave and I I would just like raid the whole kitchen, but then try to make it look like none of that was gone, hide the trash in the bottom um, of the trash bin. So all these things, and I didn't realize that was part of a a disorder. Um, And for me, it was very specific to safety and control, but it wasn't until I was in high school and became very fixated 
my OCD began to really spike and my OCD was very tied to numbers and calories were an amazing way to get obsessed with numbers and especially seeing like how few I could in intake without feeling too sick. And so it just, you know, and then the scale, um, we, of course, as most families, they have a bathroom scale. And that was another like number I could fixate on and find a reason that it wasn't right. And I was never a big person. Um, I'm a very normal weight now. I was actually quite underweight most of my childhood and adolescence, um, but still never had a period of my life that I've ever truly struggled with my weight. Um, so I think in the adoption community, it doesn't get talked a lot about, about that need for safety and security. And for me, that's really what it became is when I didn't have control in my life, it came out in like, let's count these calories and let's count the amount of calories you're burning on the treadmill. And um, that's another part of disordered eating that's really big is orthorexia and getting fixated on calories in versus out and using fitness for that too. And there's definitely something I really found I struggled with um, and sometimes still struggle with. I, I just cover that part of on the treadmill now and try not to track stats because it's just, it's easy to get fixated on. Right. Absolutely. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that for us, Narmada. Um, just listening to you talk, I had a couple questions that came to mind. First um, is kind of when you were going through these uh, episodes where you would start to hoard food, be like, okay, I'm going to go grab, go run to the kitchen, grab some stuff, bring it to my room or whatever. Can you kind of talk to us about what was going on in your brain right there? It's a great question. I, I remember everything was about doing it before my mom got home. And if I can like go back, it was almost like a bad anxiety attack. And like, you got, you only have a limited amount of time she could walk in any moment. And it's funny because as an adult, I look back and I'm like, nothing would have happened had she had walked in and you were eating eating food from the pantry. It's your food. Um, and, and my mom always provided me food. She never commented on how much I ate or how little I ate. And I, I ate a lot. Um, I, in my mind, overate. After years of therapy, I realized I never actually truly overate, but in my mind, that's what it felt like. Um, and my mom even, she would find the candy wrappers in my room. She would like find the trash and then clean it all up. And then, you know, I had this obsession with these chocolate bars for a long time. And I found that then my mom started just keeping those chocolate bars in the pantry. And it was this like silent understanding of I needed this and her not like addressing it, which was kind of wonderful in a way. Um, because it was just, then it was accessible, but I actually found when she started providing it, I they didn't want it as much. I wasn't sneaking around, but it was, it was really interesting because in those moments, it was like a panic thing. Like you only have a limited amount of time to do this. And then you have to like cover up all the evidence of it. So she never knows. Right. Absolutely. Can you kind of talk about the culture around food within your family? And what I mean is like, were you guys big, um, family gathering type people, like kind of what was the relationship that your family had with food? That's a great question. Um, during family gatherings, I think I would actually, with my aunt and her husband, I was really disgusted with the way they ate. 
Um, my uncle would put like whipped cream. Everything was covered in butter. It, it just was disgusting to me. Um, growing up, I thought sweet potatoes were the most disgusting thing in the world because our family would drench it in melted butter, cinnamon sugar, and then marshmallows, which apparently is quite common, but I, yeah. it was the most disgusting thing in the world. And it wasn't until like five years ago that I started eating sweet potatoes just plain. And I was like, this is my favorite vegetable <laughs> ever. And I, but I just, my growing up was like, you drench this in more sugar and fat and they're fine on their own. So I think that was my perception was my family always having to put sugar on things. And then I went into a career and to fitness and sugar was like the enemy of all. And so I had this really, I became actually really obsessed about not eating sugar for a while um, to the point where it, it drove my mother crazy. And that was like in my mid twenties where I just like refused to intake any sugar whatsoever. Um, and I, I would justify like a little bit of fruit. That was like the, the only leeway I would give myself. And then of course that led to weight loss. So then that just reinforced it um, even more for me. But I think sugar is a, was a big thing in my family watching my grandma was a child of um, the great depression. So, you know, everything she pickles somehow is pickled with like two cups of sugar as well. So I'm like, <laughs> I look back and, it just strawberries dipped in sugar. Like every sugar is a huge thing. I think it's still something I really struggle with because I want sugar, but I also try to find this like happy medium. And it's definitely something that gets in my head. I, I feel that panic when, when I see the sugar around. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And then my next question that I just thought of was, um, can you describe an instance in your like adolescence where you would describe your um, eating disorder kind of as out of control or a moment where you're like, oh, there's something going on that kind of like shocked you, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think really end of high school, beginning of college is when I started to realize I had an eating disorder. And honestly, I don't like the term eating disorder. I prefer disordered eating. I know it sounds like silly because it's just two words switched, but mm -hmm. I don't claim a specific eating disorder. I think overall I had a little bit of each one. And so that's why I prefer that terminology, but that is when I really realized something was wrong. Um, my first food that I really, it really clicked that something was wrong was cereal. I realized, and, and it's interesting because I struggle with OCD. So it was a lot of my OCD and my my disordered eating, like interacting with each other and cereal. I remember I got this box of honey bunches of oats, family style, you know, great. And that's one of my favorite cereals. And I got made like a normal bowl, but I couldn't get the ratio of cereal and milk to work out the way I wanted it to. Like I wanted it to perfectly both of them be gone at the same time. Mm. I ate the whole box of honey bunches of oats because the milk to cereal ratio is gone. And I've never felt so sick. So then I been, I uh, purged it all up. And I remember thinking, gosh, this comes up so easy. So then I can enjoy this as much as I want because it's actually like, doesn't hurt that much coming up. And that was my justification. And I, I, and then I would 
continue to buy cereal and, but throw all of it up. And then I figured out like which cereals were easier to throw up versus the ones that like were not as pleasant or didn't have as much flavor. And, um, and that's when I really realized like, this is not okay. And realized, you know, I was hiding it. I wasn't going out with my friends as much because I'd rather stay home, eat a box of cereal and then purge it. And then I, and then you're really tired after purging. It's probably one of the most exhaustive experiences. And, and so I'd go to bed and I would sleep so well because I was so exhausted. And so it just became this, like this process. And, and I think that's when I really was like, okay, this is not good because you're, you're choosing to do this over spend time with friends and family and you're sneaking around to do it. Um, and I remember one time, just my voice being really bad because it had hurt so much. So really having to recognize something was wrong. Absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing. I think it's really interesting because like I've known you for years and we hang out all the time and everything, but this is like the first time I've ever uh, heard you talk about this and like our listeners who have probably seen you on panels at some point um, have never heard you talk about this probably. So I'm just curious, like, why is that? Like, why don't you talk about that much? Like you'll talk so openly about your adoption, but like, how come this experience isn't also tied into that journey? That makes sense. It's a great question. And I will say the first response I have is, the minute you start to identify disordered eating, everybody watches you eat. And it's so intense, the amount of people who watch you eat and you have to reassure them that you're in a good place. But you, right. you also have to tell them, this is something I may struggle with my whole life. Um, right now, it's been years since I've had any bad experiences, but I still find that I love to know what the diet craze is. I love to know what people are doing. Um, I do love restriction culture um, is what I'll call it. And I have to remind myself like nutrition is above everything. If you wanna love, enjoy your life, if you wanna love running and exercising, you have to fuel it. And exercise really pulled me out of my, my disordered eating because it, I, I, the first time I exercised and I didn't have that fuel that I needed, I felt it and I couldn't hit the goals I wanted to hit if I wasn't properly providing my body with what it needed, but it's still on my mind all the time. I think about food constantly. And I think, I think it's on my mind more than the average person. Um, I, I do judge people when I watch them eat. It's, it's just there. I can't go to a restaurant and not look at other people eating and not like judge them. I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. It's hard for me to watch other people eat. I, it's hard for me not to say something about how people eat, but I also realize like, that's my own issue. I need to own that. I can't put that on other people. Um, and I don't talk about it on panels a lot because it does come up and it's funny because I think even people want to go over it, um, because it really makes everyone have to analyze how they eat and how they make the choices that they do. Food is a part of everyone's life. And uh, I find when I do bring it up, I get probably the highest amount of parents and kids who come and talk to me after a panel, um, which is great. But I do find that I still am used 
once I bring it up, I know everybody's going to be like watching me at lunch. Did she eat? And honestly, at camp, I'm moving so fast that I don't eat a lot. My mom right. does come to camp and she is on me about eating. She's very aware that when I'm in overdrive, the first thing I omit from my life is food. And it's amazing, but you know, that she, she's aware of that. She checks in on it. But once you bring that up on a panel, like you better know that everyone's going to be watching you eat that your lunch that day, which is, that's, it's terrifying. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's certain things that you just don't really want to share or can feel like touchy or whatever. Like it's, uh, for me, with my borderline personality disorder and my self-harm, I'm careful when I talk about that and, like, in what environments, only because you feel like people look at you differently or people are like, oh, but I've known you for so long, Deontay, how could this be you? Or, oh, Narmada, I've known you for so long, I how could you struggle with this? It's like, and then I like what you said, too, about, like, I will always struggle with this, but like, it's very much in little like chunks. Like it's a process that you go through, you know, I'm in a solid place now with it, but yes, I have this, if that makes sense. Yep, absolutely. And I find even with my younger generation, I, I have a lot of one-on-ones with that high school, college age talking about these issues I find especially with Indian adoptees hoarding food is is huge um mm -hmm. that was something that came up probably in my adulthood when I just happened to be with camping with a bunch of families from camp and somebody asked about their kid they were like I keep finding wrappers in their room and I was like oh I did that <laughs> and so realizing like it's not just me and like you said sometimes it's safer in certain environments but they're are times when I'm on a panel and there's 50 people in there and I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm ready to, to bring right. part of it out. <laughs> right. I think, you know, looking at it through the lens of trauma is really crucial because, you know, I imagine that the hoarding is a result of the trauma and um, you're, uh, bringing prior to being adopted, you know? Absolutely. That was something my therapist and I really dived into. And it was probably one of the most validating experiences I had was having my therapist tell me like you starved for the first two years of your life. And so your brain hardwired based on lack of nutrition, which when you're an infant and toddler, the primary focuses are sleep, you know, just systematic functioning and food. You, there's nothing else that you're, you're dependent on. And in that orphanage, we were all very malnourished. We were, we all came with not having access to food regularly and not necessarily knowing when that next meal would come. And that was the first thing my mom said was that feeding me was no issue. I was ready for whatever she put in front of me. And, uh, and I still, in my mind, think I'm overeating all the time. And I actually, for a short while, did calorie, chat, uh, calorie count with my therapist and found out that I was still under eating most of the time. So my perception and reality were, are still very skewed. It's something I really have to cognitively think about when I'm eating and 
I hate to calorie count now, but I really focus on getting the nutrition um, and make sure that I'm adequately providing that. Yeah. And kind of what do you do to uh, get your reality in check with what you're envisioning? Like, how do you alter that to where you're like, oh, and is it, and is there a way to even kind of get that back in line? I think for me, meditation is, has always been the thing that has really centered me the most because when I find that I'm feeling weird things about food, which comes and goes, especially when I'm anxious, I can either restrict or I want every candy item in the world. Um, but I find that meditation recenters me and refocuses on what my body needs. I really have to think of it constantly as, as fuel, fuel. Um, and I did a CBT therapy workbook specifically for disordered eating that really helped me identify when I'm emotionally responding. And that's been huge for me is realizing I'm eating this because I'm in an emotional state and, and trying to separate those. Um, a big principle of Buddhism is like separating our emotions from the things we do in our daily life. And that's what I really have to do with food. I have to see food as a necessity, not as a reaction. Yeah. So just really pinpointing like the root cause and be like, and putting names to the emotions, be like, I'm eating because I'm anxious or whatever is going on. Mm -hmm. And then also forgiveness is a big part of it. When I eat a lot one day, it's okay. I have to remember like, that's not going to cause me to gain five pounds overnight. And if it does, that's okay too. Um, and like, and realizing that, you know, you have to enjoy yourself. Um, sometimes I just want to have a junk food night and I can't hold on to guilt about that. Um, and I have to let go of that control and, in, and in, enjoy it a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, just from the beginning, listening to you, I'm like going back to my childhood and I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I definitely did some of these. Actually, like two weeks ago, I ate Skittles and then I hit them in my car. <laughs> Cause I didn't want anyone to know almost like myself. Like I didn't want myself to be like, oh, you need a whole bag of Skittles. Like, I still have shame over it, even though I love Skittles. Um, but it's just so interesting to hear how, um, I think like deeply seated these things are into us and whether it's from our adoption trauma or this other trauma or societal trauma, I think it's so interwoven in so many different ways. You know, I imagine anyone who's listening to this podcast has had moments of disordered eating in some way or another. And I love what you mentioned about the forgiveness and then detaching emotion from reality, like what's really happening here and how those have been really supportive to you. And I hope our listeners are at least can take away some of those nuggets and normalizing it, right? Like this is two weeks ago, I had these Skittles, like I was not a child. And so it's just interesting how it, it still shows up and I think we like to put ourselves in boxes for better or for worse. Like what you were saying, people put you into this box when you say that out loud um, and they want to talk to you about it. And, um, and how many of us 
could potentially be in the box, but choose not to be. And how does that get to be empowering to us? We get to, we were talking about this earlier on the panel, we get to write our own narratives. We get to call it what we want to call it. And um, I think as long as we're trying to see what's under it and heal, that's really all that matters at the end of the day, no matter what you call it. I, I would love to eat a whole bowl of cereal. <laughs> no, I love cereal. I haven't had cereal in years. <laughs> it is a big no-no food in my, my home. Yeah. It's good to know that too. Yeah. What can we eat? What we, can we not eat? What isn't healthy to eat? What Maybe. can we bring in the household? What we can't bring in the household? Yep. Yeah. And I've had a lot of clients who do the hoarding thing too. And exactly what your therapist said, you know, it's this, um, yeah, you were nutritionally starved. And so you're, of course, you're going to hoard it. Of course, you're going to keep it. But like, it makes so much sense, right? It's just like, sur it's a survival mechanism. That means you're like a healthy human because you want to survive. It's like a good sign, right? Exactly. Um, that constant fight or flight aspect. Yeah. Right. And there's obviously things that we should do to support if that is happening. Um, but yeah, not to be scared if that happens. I will. I mean, then there's like mice and like bugs and there's this whole yep. other situation that comes into play. But. I guess my next question is kind of what can parents do to support their kids or like for you, Narman, is there something that you wish that your mom had done differently or a way that she could have fostered a dialogue around what was going on when you were young and going through it a lot? Yeah, that's a really great question, actually. I wish, I wish it had been noticed earlier. Um, I think I escalated quite a bit in college because I, college was really terrifying for me when I started. It was just my abandonment issues were skyrocketing. There was just a lot of feeling of not having control. I think food hoarding is something that a lot of parents don't recognize. Um, I think if there's anything that really sticks out to me in disordered eating is this hoarding aspect. So I feel like if parents see there's a lot of wrappers, they see that their kids stop at 7-Eleven on the way home constantly, maybe pry a little bit, like check in with your kids here and there because I definitely had so many candy wrappers. Like even today, if I see that cookies and cream Hershey bar, which by the way is the worst thing in the world. When I see those, that's where like my mind goes back to is like 15 year old me at 7-Eleven, like buying seven of those and just like hiding them throughout my room. And and I know my mom would have never gotten mad at me for it, but I wish, I wish I had understood a little bit more of what was going on in my head at that time, because it didn't make any sense. It was just, I love these and I need them now, but I also need to make sure nobody knows I have them. And I would wait till my mom went to bed to eat those. So I wish more parents could recognize not just the straightforward ones, such as anorexia and bulimia. That's all people think about with disordered eating there's a lot of other things. Binge eating disorder is huge. Um, and food hoarding is a big part of, can contribute to binge eating disorder. And I think a lot of parents don't really know what to look for. It's something that can be really subtle. I feel like for me, I didn't start getting help until it was that I was purging. But then looking back, I was like, I've been doing this my whole life. 
and not realizing that my anxiety and stress, um, that's how it was coming out. So I think recognizing like disordered eating is, is huge. It's a lot, it can come out in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And so you think it was more of like this escalation of behaviors. And if your mom got in earlier, it could have looked differently. Am I hearing that correctly? Correct. Yes, exactly. And I think, I think in our culture, we really don't talk about food hoarding at all. Um, even chatting with Deontay earlier, we, we were bringing that up and he was like, it's never something I thought of. And I, I was like, yeah, it wasn't for me either until I started really diving into it with a therapist. Um, but I think there are a lot of warning signs that parents can look at um, because it can escalate and purging is, is extremely dangerous. Um, I didn't realize I was using laxatives in high school and I didn't know that was a dangerous thing to do. I just had seen some article about wrestlers doing it to lose weight and that's all I, I stuck with. And so, but I didn't know that was dangerous. And I think people know more now about that, but they're laxatives you can buy at 7-Eleven, you know, and you can purge in any bathroom. And I just, it's very dangerous. You can die from, from it. It's the electrolyte imbalances, the exhaustion. And so if you can start seeing those earlier signs, it, it can really make a big difference in getting into that therapy sooner. Yeah, exactly. Like if you see it and notice it, you know, knowing this is a survival mechanism mm-hmm. it is acting out and it's important to seek support. In that control issue, I think that was huge for me to realize that it was always related to control, not my body image. Um, but I still, to this day, I don't have full length mirrors ever in a vicinity. I, I honestly very direct, like intentionally avoid mirrors um, even like my makeup, I try to just do that as quickly as possible and like get out. Um, because I, it, body dysmorphia connects right to it all. And so having to be intentional about like eliminating some of those things that can be triggers. Yeah. It sounds like you've figured out a lot of ways to be supportive to you. Yeah. That's obviously always the most important is to learn the triggers and what's best for you. I love all the work you've done, the CBT and all the work with your therapist and all of these really, really important pieces that come with it. And then again, just, you know, the, what we, what we have as the media is such, I say garbage, like it's just total garbage and kills our souls, I think all the time. So what I've also done, what I can say the one thing I've done is I removed any people off Instagram who I felt um, when I looked at them, I was like, oh, I need to change or I need to look different. And so I removed all of them and instead I replaced them with all of these like other healthier versions of them where I look at them and I'm like, oh, I wanna like do better and feel better and be motivated, not, oh, oh, I hate myself, so, yeah. I like that because even like social media plays a huge part in it. Like even I sometimes will feel bad about myself on like Instagram or whatever, cause it's like, we want to look a certain way and project that image out to us, but it's like, it's not even real, you know? Yeah, I tell all my teams, I'm like, unfollow anyone you see, even if it's your friend and even like 
Although there's that whole, um, there's like that whole other situation that comes with teens unfollowing friends. Like that's a way big deal. But I'm like, if your friends or people you know make you feel gross, remove them immediately. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's a way, I don't know about Insta, but I know Facebook, you can like unfollow, but still be their friend. So I know that's a good sneaky way to do it where you're still protecting yourself, which is great. So yeah, we gotta keep ourselves protected. Absolutely. I have no social media anymore <laughs> and I feel great. So I understand. That is so good. Is there anything else you want to say to just, you know, as we wrap this up? No, I am so appreciative for, for you letting me use this platform to talk about it. Um, it was interesting when I was deciding that this was what I was going to choose because I know a lot of people know me, but they don't know this part of me. So I guess safety behind the, the podcast screen is there, but um, it was definitely like a topic that I, I think about all the time. It's just not something I vocalize as much as I would like to. It's something I would like to start talking about more. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing with us, Narmada, um, and learning because like I said, you know, I see you all the time and yeah, I didn't even know this side of you. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. And maybe anyone who's listening who knows Narmida, like, let's just promise you're not going to watch her eat food and you're going to just be really loving around this and trust her when she says she is healthy and managing. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone. And um, obviously, Gwena was not here for this episode, and we missed her a lot. We will be back soon with Glenna and someone new. We're going to talk about um, being a mother. So that'll be next time.